I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. It's non-verbal communication, again, that really taps into a lot of our very kind of intuitive ways of responding to features in the world. So much communication happens before we ever open our mouths. In fact, body language is often a more accurate reflection of how we feel than the things we say. So it's no surprise that despite our expanding methods of communication, dance has continued to prevail. And although its significance may seem less profound now than it was perhaps during the time of pre-literate agricultural communities, when ritual dance was an integral part of social communication, dance as an art form is still so important to us today. And that narrative is changing still as technology enhances and alters our experiences of dance, whether it's thanks to TikTok trends democratising the art form, or through technology like VR, offering audiences a never-before-possible level of immersion. To discuss this and much more, I'm joined by the wonderful Alexander Whitley, an esteemed choreographer working at the cutting edge of British contemporary dance. Chapter 1. An Ambiguous Place of Meaning When you tell a story only through the human body, without words, the possible interpretations are endless. As writers, we don't often give enough credit to abstract narratives. Though they can be harder for an audience to piece together, they challenge in a way that can't be achieved by the spoken word, and are just as relevant as conventional narratives. But Alexander isn't taking the traditional approach of storytelling, of things like well-known ballets, He's reinventing the landscape of dance. Probably the most well-known ballets, you know, are, are, are narrative-based ballets. That, you know, the likes of Swan Lake or The Nutcracker. They're telling stories. They're, they're based around a, a narrative structure. But actually, if you if you look at the the amount of content over a, a three-act ballet that, that is storytelling, it, it's it's actually very little. They, they tend to be more kind of structures on which to hang the you know the technical display of, of virtuosic dancing more than really telling stories so I think that always prompted me to think about what exactly is being conveyed through the moving body where and what carries meaning in, in a dance performance and yeah I guess how I can be most effective in in communicating um, my ideas and interests or or creating effective experiences through movement it's really interesting what you say if a conventional ballet like Swan Lake were in the hands, for example, of a literary editor, it'd be hacked right back because a lot of the content is is not moving the story forward. But it's it's strange, isn't it? I've always wondered whether ballet has something of an unfair advantage over more abstract work because we kind of it's like Shakespeare. We sort of already know these stories intuitively we've, we've been exposed to them enough and therefore we perhaps don't have to work as hard as an audience to enjoy them because we know them but then the flip side and the danger is that you know ballet becomes a little complacent and doesn't work hard enough to engage the audiences because when I when I watch your work I have to be fully committed to watching it you know I, I'm trying to understand what's going on i'm trying to understand what you're doing with the movement in a way that you know if it was shakespeare i could i could say oh i love i love i can't wait to see how they do this bit this this line's always you know funny for for me watching your work 
I am much more committed than perhaps a piece that I knew well. Would you recognise that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, these classic stories, and you know, ballet has has um, borrowed from from literature often for its narratives, and 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 there's good reason to do that because, like you say, people come with prior knowledge of those narratives, and therefore don't need to work quite so hard to understand or follow the narrative. The the signifiers, in a lot of respects, um, lie elsewhere in in movement, and I guess when there isn't a familiar narrative at work in a, in a dance production, in a way that there isn't with the kind of work I make, because it's, you know, we're exploring often quite abstract ideas or um, ideas that have been borrowed from political or sociological or scientific thinking, that there aren't these kind of obvious plot moments, if you like. There are there are scenes and scenarios and atmospheres that that, that are constructive, constructed through through which you might arrive at a certain feeling or understanding of, of what's going on but it's not the same kind of precise knowledge of what is being said right there and then in a way that we can we can derive from language and and i find that you know deeply fascinating to think about where the signifiers in 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 movement lie and to go back to the point you made before about early human history and and the the emergence of of narratives in in cave paintings we take it for granted that we you know everybody learns themselves and the world first and foremost through movement through their bodies before they have the ability to communicate through language so it's a journey that we all go on through through our um, our lifetimes and obviously we or most of us arrive at a, a state where we can think in language and communicate in language but there's still so much going on in the way we communicate that is about our movement and gestures and all sorts of subtleties of, of of physical expression, and I guess that's that's the kind of place that that dance exists in, in that perhaps more ambiguous place of meaning than than language, but in something that I think we're all really deeply and intuitively connected to because it goes back you know millennia through human history, and not just human history through animate history, through the emergence of all life. You know, it's it's about movement in specific environments i mean that that kind of understanding of of movement in, in in terms of natural history has been has been really significant for me in in understanding better the the tools i have to work with as a choreographer what's actually happening when people watch another person move what's communicated by that what you know what level meaning is being communicated and there's a there's an idea of, um, from a, an American philosopher called Maxine Sheets Johnson of kinetic semantics she talks a lot about this in a, in a deeply fascinating way in that the meaning of movement resides much more in the the dynamic qualities of movement we know instinctively we don't we don't have to think rationally about what to do when a cricket ball flies towards our heads we've moved out of the way of it before we've had time to think and process what's going on. And similarly, um, like the work of Antonio Damasio, a, a neuroscientist, he, he had a, a brilliant book called the, the Feeling of What Happens, you know, this idea that emotions are awareness of changes in our, in our body. The, the, there's an intelligence and, a, and an awareness that exists in our bodies that's almost prior to our, our kind of rational or reflective conscious awareness. And that kind of understanding of of movement and perception and awareness has been really informative to the way that I think about dance. There's a couple of things to pick up on there. 
one is something that I've just been reminded of, something that Dame Evelyn Glennie said to us in the very first series of this show. She described human beings as being natural-born percussionists because we kick and bang in the womb. The early stages of human life are very much an exploration of the world around us via movement. And when, when babies learn to crawl, that opens up a whole big series of adventures for them. And, and, and this happens years before they can communicate in what we would consider to be conventional language. So I, I absolutely think that there's something in that. What you said about emotion is also fascinating, Alex, because writers need to understand that our emotions are perhaps the thing we are least able to control. We might not allow them to manifest in action or dialogue, but something will have a reaction inside us. It will create an emotion. And if you think about it, movement or action and dialogue are simply physical and verbal manifestations of the emotion that has already occurred. We can perhaps control those to a certain extent, but we can't control the emotion. And dance to me is fascinating. What you're trying to do by taking the audience on the journey that you take them on, you allow them to fill in the gaps for themselves. Because you're not saying, here is a conventional narrative, this is what's happening, this is the story, this is how it's evolving. You are creating an environment in which they themselves will fill in those gaps. And not that there are gaps, but they will have different emotional responses to it. And as a storyteller, I find that absolutely fascinating that once you put this work out there, it will have a different emotional impact on, on everybody else. So in a way, you're creating considerably more stories than you might be if you were telling a conventional ballet-based narrative. Yeah, well, I guess it's maybe nicer to think about it as kind of space rather than gaps, <laughs> necessarily. Space is a better word, you're yeah. right, yes. In, in terms of w what... Yeah, what exists for the for the audience in terms of their, their opportunity to be actively engaged in the experience in a way that, you know, in conversations we're, you know, we're hanging off the words often of, of our interlocutors, that there's, a, there's an immediacy to it that, um, that in conversation in language that is obviously different in movement where, as I was saying, the, the, the signifiers aren't perhaps quite so precise. There's a, an inherent ambiguity and, you know, a, a space opens up in that ambiguity for for interpretation and for for meaning not to have to be arrived at immediately that there's a different conception of time you know the ideas unfold over different periods of time i guess th through movement and again that's that's really fascinating from the perspective of creating dance because like any time-based medium there's there's a really important consideration of you know the pacing of things over time the dramatic developments the the ebbs and flows of dramatic tension or periods of uncertainty. I mean, I, I, I tend to think about it much more in, in terms of the, the dramatic structure of the work and ideas being kind of diffuse across the many layers of, of, of features that exist in a dance production, because it's not just the, the movement of the dancers on stage, it's the music in what it's contributing, uh, in the lighting, in whatever, whatever other forms of visual or technolo technological media that might be present um, in the kind of work I make. And it's the coming together of these things in, in an atmosphere that is actually what is felt and experienced by the audience. There'll be potentially many different kinds of moods and feelings that are they're experienced and maybe different forms of meaning that can be arrived at or moments where you're deliberately 
uncertain about what's going on and that, that kind of that space of an uncertainty or ambiguity i think is is a really powerful thing that dance can do that that can create a space for experience that tends to be fairly absent from the rest of the world in our lives that are so dominated by by text and by other forms of media um, that are kind of much more kind of tuning into that chattering parts of our our brains and our minds Chapter two, overflow. Big data is a term we've come to know well. Although the concept of infinitely huge stores of data is inherently complex, now more than ever we know how fundamental this information has become to our daily lives. Big data is allowing all sorts of businesses to target us in ever more sophisticated ways, and our lives are becoming increasingly intertwined with technology. Alexander tackles this in one of his recent works, Overflow. Through a series of intimate solos and expansive group sequences, the project asks what it means to be human in the era of big data. The Overflow project began life pre-lockdown, but gained a much wider significance when COVID hit. We started working on Overflow in early 2019, and I had been really quite powerfully influenced by a few books that I'd been reading around the area of technology and the influence of, of social media and big data. I mean, it's a general field of interest of mine. A lot of my work is is motivated by this, largely because of the, the presence of technology in the productions we make. I work a lot with it in terms of what's seen on stage and the, the processes through which we go to to create our, our productions. But, you know, thematically, it's something that's um, deeply of interest as well. But there's um, a book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zubov, um, which caused quite a stir, I think, in um, in 2019 or early 2020 when it was, no, it would have been 2019, sorry, um, when it was published, which revealed a lot or raised a, a lot of awareness around the, the surveillance-based business models of a lot of the social media and tech giants like Facebook and, and Google. And... A couple of other books, one called um, Psychopolitics by a, a Korean, a South Korean philosopher called Byung-Chul Han, and a book called uh, New Dark Age by James Bridle, all kind of discussing similar and related themes around just the massive impact that these new technologies, the internet and social media have had on the world and have kind of um, happened without us really realizing just how significant the changes have been and and then the the effect or the influence these technologies are having over our psychology the way we communicate with each other and i think one thing that really stood out more than anything in this and 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 made me feel as though it was a particularly relevant issue to explore through dance was the idea that human behavior and emotions have become the most prized raw material of the digital economy, of an economy that's based around the acquisition of, of big data, because it's ultimately our behavior, our, our actions in front of screens or, you know, as we scroll through social media streams that is being acquired by these um, tech giants. And, and there's, you know, massive amounts of, of money being thrown at the design of platforms and interfaces that that capture and hold our attention um, very powerfully because that's that's how they make the money. So this got me thinking a lot about how you know emotion is effectively the 
the raw my raw material as a choreographer it's the it's the basis on which i construct and uh, and shape you know what, what what goes on stage and so thinking about how we could explore some of the of these themes and and i guess refer to the the kinds of states that we're being led towards through our use of technology and how we can reflect that on stage was was really what motivated me to make this piece in the first place yeah and i had you know the, the pleasure of working with some really wonderful collaborating artists on it and um, we worked with some kinetic light artists uh, a duo called children of the light based in amsterdam who i've worked with on a, on, a, on a few productions they created a really amazing moving light sculpture a long kind of beam of light with lots and lots of led lights put into it which we could program in a you know amazing variety of ways um but the the bar itself moves around the stage and holds a really strong presence as a, a feature of technology as something that the dancers both address and are i guess illuminated by or cast in the presence of i had an original score for the production created by um another long-term collaborator called Brian West who also goes by the name of of Rival Consoles and some masks and costumes to, to um created by Anna Rykovich and you know each one of the collaborators was was able to kind of get stuck into these these books or this this area as a as a source of inspiration and tease out different features of the subject to be represented I guess on on, on stage so Anna for example created some masks that the dancers wear which are based on or inspired by the way that facial recognition algorithms map the contours of the human face we 3d scanned the six dancers in the in in the production um so we had a 3d model of their faces and so she could create these um 3d models of the masks and then we had them 3d printed so they you know mapped on exactly to the contours of each one of the the performers in the piece Ryan did some great things in terms of using different recording techniques to generate sounds for the score. My favorite thing that he did was to take a a microphone but basically he he put it against his phone while he was scrolling through Instagram so he could record the sound of the data being communicated from the modem and his phone as it was kind of uploading down and downloading the data going into his Instagram feed and he used that in we ended up using it in a scene where the the light bar is dropped down really close to the uh, the floor of the stage and is just scanning over the top of the dancers as they kind of lie underneath it so it's got a really kind of creepy sinister feel to it it's probably the one of the more kind of dark and sinister parts of the of the pieces not all doom and gloom but yeah i mean that's just you know one example of the many different ways that you know this subject can be explored in a production like this and um i guess being free of the need to be telling a specific story we're a bit more kind of liberated to to explore many different avenues and and construct a world that somehow embodies and um has these ideas diffuse within it um in a way that if we were, if i was trying to tell the story of a particular person and their relationship to this subject would it would be quite different and and, and maybe more difficult chapter 3 future rights 
Audiences are becoming increasingly sophisticated and open to immersion, enjoying an involvement in story that goes way beyond conventional narrative. Take Series 2 guest Guy Gadney, for example. His company, Charisma, deliver AI-driven personalised storytelling, which hands over near-complete control to the audience. Equally, you have the immersive theatre and cinema experiences offered by the likes of Punch Drunk and Secret Cinema. And now Alexander is bringing this deep sense of immersion to dance through his project Future Rights. It's described as a multi-user virtual reality dance experience which invites audiences to play an active part alongside a cast of professional dancers. That's damn cool. A prototype of the project was shown at South by Southwest, but Alexander promises a longer and larger performance experience to come. I guess the origin of this really goes all the way back to the start of my work with interactive technology and the development of my understanding of how this kind of technology works and and where it can be applied most effectively. And we've tended to use quite a lot of it in, in our stage productions, where, for example, the performer will be tracked by a, a motion tracking system and their movement will then drive visuals that are projected alongside them. So you can see a, a relationship of interaction between the performers and um, and the projected visuals. And it might be quite obvious in saying this, but it tends to be that in these with these interactive systems, the the experience is most enjoyable or the most can be immediately known and understood from the perspective of the person interacting with the visuals, not from the perspective of the audience watching that interaction. It's actually quite difficult, as I've learned, to use that um, relationship of interaction as uh, a dramaturgical feature. You've got to work quite hard to establish the relationship in the first place or to be clear about that relationship and then to construct a, a narrative or a, a dramaturgy from it that, that keeps you interested and surprised. But we've made a few VR experiences over the, the, the past few years. We were invited in, in 2018 to work with The Guardian newspaper's um, VR department. They were on the first, uh, I think, to you know establish or set up a, a kind of ded- dedicated VR department. And they approached us with the interest of, of making a, a performance-based project. And I also have friends and collaborators and people close to me who are, have been working in this field for a long time. So I've been following the development of these technologies with with real interest in terms of you know what they can do in terms of constructing worlds and environments within which experiences can take place, but also how they can track people's movements with increasing degrees of sophistication and accuracy, and also then construct digital avatars. Um, so as you enter into these experiences, you can see a body in the place of your own, which can obviously look very different to the, the ones we occupy in the real world. So that there are really fascinating creative possibilities that emerge with the ability to you know, construct a world from scratch and place a member of the public in that world. I guess from the perspective of a dance maker who predominantly makes work for the stage, the convention is that the audience views the work from a distance. And, you know, as you mentioned, the likes of Punch Drunk and Secret Cinema have, have obviously been disrupting these conventions for, for quite some time. And what we're trying to do with, with Future Rights is similar to that. But the significant difference, I'd say, is in what the interactive technology affords us in terms of 
providing feedback to people's actions in the space. So in a punishment performance, for example, you know, you're immersed within the world of whatever production it is that they're, they're presenting to you um, and the performers perform around you. But as a participant in the experience, you choose, so there's, there's a choice as to how kind of active or passive you remain, but even in the most active state, you're not directly intervening in the, in the narrative itself. And what I find really exciting about about working with these kind of immersive technologies um, like virtual reality is that we can enable the public to play a really active part in in the performance, you know, for them to dance alongside professionals um, within the same kinds of world. And this kind of feedback loop of, of action and visual perception or you know, feedback that comes from your action that will stimulate you to to respond or move in ways that you might not necessarily do ordinarily. It, it's it's basically a, a, a really advanced version of a mirror. And that process of action and, and perception, you know, the feedback we get through what we see in, in relation to how we move is, you know, is deeply ingrained. There's a there's a kind of long tradition of that. And an interactive technology and VR in particular kind of explode the possibilities of of that basic system the kinds of feedback you can provide based on people's movement inputs are kind of endless you can change and augment and amplify features in ways that when placed with a something that resembles you can really lead people down very different courses of action from what they might otherwise do and and what that does that really excites me is it really opens up accessibility to to dance to movement based experiences you can bake in quite complex dance concepts or you know choreographic concepts into these interactive systems that can otherwise be really dull and time consuming to have to try and explain to people i know this cuz <laughs> i've been through the training you know people who want to dance want to be moving and and it's a real problem of of how you language movement-based concepts, how you describe them through words, because you're effectively having to translate them from one medium into another and then back into into that uh, original medium. And an awful lot is lost in translation. So these technologies really get around that problem. You don't need to translate it. You can communicate directly through movement-based concepts. It's non-verbal communication, again, that really taps into a lot of our very kind of intuitive ways of responding to features in the world. And that I find, you know, really, really exciting in terms of, yeah, how we can bring members of the public into these kinds of worlds and environments. So it's it's a, a project that um, is a real long-term commitment. You know, I've, I've been working with these kind of technologies for nearly a decade now. And yeah, there's still, still an awful long way to go in really understanding how to effectively work with them and to bring these kind of technologies to the public in a way that is reliable and robust enough for people to you know have have genuinely exciting experiences with but it feels as though the kind of world of vr is just about getting into a state of maturity now there are people coming to it from all sorts of different backgrounds the convention has been you know it's the film industry that have been kind of um, leading the development of this this technology but i as a choreographer and theater directors and people that are really thinking about movement in space and the staging of things actually feel to me to have a lot more relevant experience in constructing the kinds of worlds and environments that um, are going to be really powerfully effective.
I think the most successful uses of you know collaborations between one art form and perhaps another and then the addition of technology the most successful of those collaborations understand intuitively that technology is not a replacement for story or meaning it is just like the human body it is a tool and if a film you know you mentioned film as if, if a film is overloaded with special effects and cgi and motion capture and all of that i mean that's kind of interesting for a while but at the heart of it needs to be a story and the only thing i've seen of future rights is what's on the website and i've seen the trailer which i would encourage people to watch because i think you very quickly forget or or kind of put to one side the fact that there is an obvious use of technology in it because of the way you use the technology and the human being to tell a story that is to me at least really all about understanding our relationship with the planet and the state of the world and kind of bizarrely it made me think about my own impact on the planet even though i was watching you know vr and, and technology but i wasn't expecting to be moved in the way that i was by the trailer because at the heart of it as i mentioned earlier there is a message in which we are asked to think given the increasingly fractured nature of the world we're asked to think who or what we might be prepared to sacrifice and 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 live without and that immediately makes you completely forget about the use of vr and technology because you've brought the, the whole thing back to story all you're doing is using these amazing advances as tools that's it they're not crutches you know they're not a replacement for story it's simply a tool at your disposal isn't it yeah one of the best descriptions of technology that i've come across is the idea that when it's successful it's invisible it's often when technology breaks and doesn't work that it becomes very visible because it's it's an interruption it's a it's a barrier to action and to expression and again we take it for granted that that we've been using technologies as extensions of our senses from the beginning of history you think about the telescope for example our bodies aren't just the things that we experience right here you know our, our senses extend through all different forms of technologies and then you know vr is just one kind of continuation of of that in terms of different kinds of affordances of of extensions of our actions and senses but you know it's really important that the technology is understood and used in a way that does ultimately enable people to act through it not come up against a barrier in relation to it in future rights which is is based on on the right of spring which is probably one of the most famous dance productions the is considered to be the first real modern dance production originally created in in 1913 by Nijinsky with a a score by Stravinsky and we're taking this into VR for the first time we think um it's you know it's a production that's been reimagined and restaged probably more than than any other and and hopefully we're bringing something quite original to it by taking it into VR and by putting members of the public kind of within um, the experience rather than kind of watching it from a distance but the you know, the premise of 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 the writer spring is that there is a, a pagan community who identify through their ritual dances a, a sacrificial victim who in the original version dances herself to death for the good of the community to revitalize the earth and to make sure the the crops come to feed them so th- these themes of of ritual nature and and sacrifice are 
really fundamental to or inherent in in the original synopsis and and so it's obviously been an interesting exercise for us to think about how we can find contemporary relevance to these issues and you know there's there's an awful lot going on in the world in terms of uh, our various crises but you know the the most significant perhaps being our crisis in our relationship to nature and so finding ways to to connect to contemporary issues and experiences um, I think is important and especially when we have the opportunity to pose these questions directly to the public because we're inviting them to take an active part in the experience and yeah, that's one of the really interesting things in thinking about how we construct the the narrative journey through this experience. We're obviously giving agency over to the public. They they get to act in and um, make choices within this experience that have an effect over the world there within and the other people within it. And there's there's something that's also kind of inherently really playful in what we're doing. There's some kind of easy wins in VR in terms of the opportunity to change perspective and scale. You know, we can amplify the size of your body to to be a, a giant, a, a god of the earth. Um, so your movements extend into a kind of epic proportions, which is just plain fun. And that's a really important part of of, of what we're doing with this. We're 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 creating an experience that does get people to to feel the fun and the 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 joy of moving on a on a on a large scale and to feel bigger and more empowered in their body but then to use that feeling and to kind of flip it back on itself to then pose some more serious questions perhaps about what you do when you've got this power and responsibility or if you have to choose to sacrifice something what would it be well, it sounds absolutely fascinating. We wish you lots of luck with the continued development, not just of Future Rights, but with all of your other projects. Alexander Whitley, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Alexander Whitley for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learned? Write movement into your work. Find ways to describe the body language of your characters, to juxtapose their true feelings with the actual words coming out of their mouths, and leave your descriptions just ambiguous enough for the audience to draw their own conclusions. Technology is a tool that should be manipulated. It's not there to replace art, but to enhance it. Consider offering immersive experiences to your own audience. This can be as simple as creating an interactive map of the world you've built for them in your writing, or as complex as writing the next big onstage immersive production. And finally, look for the simple but creative wins you can get out of technology. Alexander's team was able to create a powerfully sinister piece of music for the score simply by recording the sound of a phone's modem whirring while loading Instagram photos. You don't need to reinvent the wheel to do something extraordinary. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Get in touch with us directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information, links to Alexander's work and a full transcript of this episode. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.